0: good to see you this morning. If you have your Bible, would you open with me to Colossians chapter 1? As you're getting there, I just want to uh, go ahead and introduce myself. If you are new here, my name is Austin. I'm the lead pastor, and it is an absolute joy that you have joined us this morning to worship God and to hear His Word. Colossians chapter 1. We will be beginning our series through the book of Colossians this morning. Uh, Hopefully, this will take us 12 weeks. Prayerfully, it may take us longer. Um, As we are getting into this book, I I think that this is one of the most valuable books for the Christian life. And so today, we will be reading from Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 1, and we'll go all the way through verse 14. If you don't have your Bible, you can follow along on the screen behind me. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by God's will, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints in Christ at Colossae, who are faithful brothers and sisters, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. For we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints because of the hope reserved for you in heaven. You have already heard about this hope in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. It is bearing fruit and growing all over the world, just as it has among you since the day you heard it and came to truly appreciate God's grace. You learned this from Epaphras, our dearly beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and he has told us about your love in the Spirit. For this reason also, since the day we heard this, we haven't stopped praying for you. We are asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. So that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has enabled you to share in the saints' inheritance in the light. He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son he loves." In Him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning knowing that we are in need. And we take confidence in the truth that you graciously supply our need, you graciously provide. We thank you for your word that preaches even today to us, Lord. It is not irrelevant. It is not lost, Lord, but it is powerful. And so, Lord, we pray this morning that this word, your word, would be an avenue for us to know you more. And as we know you more, that we would grow in our love for you. And as we love you more, Lord, that you would lead us into every good work. That you would lead us into righteousness. We thank you for the work that your Son has done on the cross, Lord. Forever He is glorified. And because He is glorified, we can take hope knowing that we too will be glorified because we are in Him and He is in us. It's in your holy name we pray. Amen. Why Colossians? Why this little book of four chapters? Why spend a significant portion of our year studying this book? I think it's a question that deserves answering. And before I go too far, I think my first answer is pretty simple. It's because it's in the Bible. Because it is the Word of God. Because it is for the people of God. One of the things that I think is so important for us to grasp and to gather is what the Word of God and what preaching of the Word of God is doing to the people of God. In Ephesians chapter 5, it starts to set out some different expectations and uh, calls to both husbands and wives, and both of those are rooted in who Christ is as a human being and, and who Christ is and who we are supposed to follow after. But what's fascinating to me is after it gives the charge for the husband to love your wife as Christ has loved the church, it goes into telling us what it is that Christ has done. The first thing is that he has given himself up for her, but it also tells us that he has purified the church. He cleanses the church with the washing of the water by the word. The word of God preached to the people, the word of God read over the people of God cleanses the church for the purpose of purifying us so that one day through the ministry of the Word, Christ will present His church holy and blameless before Him. And so when we get into a book of the Bible and we are preaching books of the Bible here, the reason for that is because we believe that the ministry of the Word transforms the people of God and presents them holy and blameless before Him. And so that's what we're doing here is we are, we are going before the Word saying, Lord, cleanse us, make us new, wash our church through the power of Your Word. But the second reason why we're going through Colossians is I think that there is a question that needs answering in every single one of our lives. And it's this. What does it look like to be spiritually mature? What does it look like to be a spiritually mature individual? One who is shaped and formed not just by the Word of God, but by the Gospel of God. What does it look like to be spiritually mature? So I want to ask you that question this morning. What do you think it looks like to be spiritually mature? Now, maybe the first thing that came into your mind is, is almost like a participation trophy, right? Like, well, you went to all the Bible studies or you went to church every Sunday and you kind of read your Bible throughout the week and you prayed pretty regularly. That's what it means to be spiritually mature, or maybe you thought to yourself, well, what it means to be spiritually mature is you finally you know, memorize enough scriptures, you know the Ten Commandments, you make sure you follow them. Or maybe the way you think of spiritually mature is like, well, I've got my finances in order, I'm pretty good in my relationship with my spouse or my friends or my kids, and because of that, I, I kind of let God influence that thinking a little bit. So I'm spiritually mature because God has influenced me in certain ways to make me a somewhat decent human being. Or maybe you look at spiritual maturity as, hey, I'm going into full-time ministry. I am, I am quitting my job, and I am headed into full-time ministry. And because I'm giving up everything for him, that's what spiritual maturity is. And so I think we have ideas surrounding spiritual maturity, and we have ideas surrounding spiritual immaturity. And I think the book of Colossians is going to start to answer us, answer for us what spiritual maturity is and how we get there as Christians. I love Christian activity. I love praying. I love reading the Word. I love attending church. I think that these are all important things for the life of the believer, but the temptation for us to think is that because we do those things, we are or will become spiritually mature. And what the book of Colossians is going to place before us is that that is not the pathway to spiritual maturity if it is what we are putting our hope in. The pathway to spiritual maturity is not found in Christian activity, but it's found in Christ. I think that it is incredible and important for us to make sure that we are involving ourselves in the life of the church. But if our involvement in the life of the church gives us assurance of salvation, then we have a different view of biblical Christianity than what the Bible presents for us. Let me get into that as we go. You see, Colossians is asking and answering the question, how do we become spiritually mature? Just a little bit of context for us. I'll just tell the story of the church in Colossae. This church is being written to by the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul is currently in prison in Ephesus where Epaphras, who is the church planter or the person who started the church in Colossae, is also in prison. He is in prison with Paul and they are together and he's loading up for Paul like, man, these are all the things that are going on in my church in Colossae. And Paul's like, man, we got to write a letter to, to help them along the journey. The church is a young church. It wasn't a church that was planted by Paul, but it was by a man named Epaphras who was saved under the teaching of Paul. And Epaphras comes and he says, man, there's this young church. It's an amazing church. They love God, but there are some things that are happening in our church that are making me uncomfortable, and I'm just not sure I'm equipped to deal with them. And Paul responds to these Concerns and the concerns that are had, the concerns that reveal themselves to us about this church is number one, spiritual maturity. There were individuals who did not know what it meant to go deeper in their walk with Christ, and so what was happening is a lot of people had ideas of what that meant and they were putting them on the church, and those, what we'll call heresies, were starting to influence the church from inside. So we have a few things happening in this church. We have one is that all you need is spirituality is not found in Christ, but it's instead found in other things. You see, Christ gets you in the door and then other things get you mature. And that was a heresy that was prevalent there. So we have a couple things that are happening. We have mystical polytheism, which is that there's multiple gods and if you get the right combination of gods, Jesus being one of them, you can become spiritually mature. So if you have Jesus plus sex, Jesus plus money, Jesus plus this God, then those things will get you where you need to go. Those things will provide spiritual maturity. We had another heresy involved in this church, and it's that Christ plus the law of Israel. Like, so you come to know Christ, and then you need to make sure that you follow the law of Israel, make sure you're circumcised on the eighth day, then make sure that you do all of the ritualistic things, make sure you hold the Sabbath every single week, make sure you do all of these law-based things, because without them, you're actually probably not saved. And then another thing that's happening here, which I think is important, is that Colossae exists within the Roman Empire. And in the Roman Empire, there is a thought process that Caesar is God. And so Caesar is God, and so to come in and say, no, Caesar's not king, Caesar's not God, Jesus is king, is to now start to push against the powers at play. And so we have this young church in a melting pot of a city. There's people from all different types of cultures, and Then we have these multiple heresies going around in the church that you have to have multiple gods and you have to worship all of them and Jesus is just one of the gods. You have Jesus, yeah, he is the son of God, but it wasn't a sufficient sacrifice for you. You still have a lot of work to do. And then we also have, but wait a minute, shouldn't Caesar be king? And all of those thoughts are starting to influence the church and change the way that they view their Christian faith. And so what starts to happen in the church is there's now this pressure to pull away from Jesus or to add to him or to subtract from him because it would seem from the surrounding culture that he's not actually in control. There's other powers that be and those things are in control. And Jesus is just kind of like the nice thing you do on Sunday, but the rest of the week he's not involved in. Brothers and sisters, hear me here. Hear me. The most dangerous problems any group of believers throughout history has ever faced always stems from adding to the work of Christ or subtracting from the person of Christ. When Jesus is not enough, and so we need to be Jesus plus fill in whatever blank you want to fill in. Maybe he's good enough to forgive me of my sins, but he's certainly not big enough to trust us with all of our lives. That is the biggest problem facing the church at any point in time. I'm going to read a quote to you from a preacher by the name of Jamin Roller. He says this, he says, Persecution from the outside doesn't kill a church. A society that becomes less tolerant of Christian beliefs doesn't kill a church. Historically, the church thrives in both of those environments. But what chokes her out is when from the inside, those who claim to love Jesus add to his work or subtract from his rule in a way that makes us less dependent on him and makes him less than who he has shown himself to be. You see, if we respond to the worries about today and the shifts in our culture of our world with, ah, man, Jesus isn't enough. We need to start doing other things within our cities. We need to start doing other things. Man, we got to start adding on to what this gospel presentation means. If we start to respond to the worries of our world in that way, what we are going to do is inevitably start to diminish the role and the rule of Christ, the work of Christ, and the power of Christ. You see, we don't need to prote- be protected from what's going on out there. We know how this all ends The solution is to become convicted and transformed by what we say we believe. And what's fascinating is these heresies are starting to happen within the church, and what Paul is not doing is he's not saying, all right, let me give you an apologetics class for how to answer all those heresies. What does he do? He uplifts and gives them a higher view of Christ. Next week, we're going to start in on chapters 1, verse 15 through verse 20, and it is one of the most beautiful passages of, and I'm going to say a word, and I'm going to want you to say it with me afterwards, Christological Christological, that's a good word. Christological just magnificent beauty in the New Testament. It's theology of who Christ is, it's study of Christ. And when we have a bigger view of Christ, when we have a bigger view of God, that's what leads to transformation. That's what leads to spiritual maturity. And so what What Paul is doing in this letter is not to respond with, okay, well, here's how you respond to that heresy and here's how you respond to that heresy. No, what he does is he doubles down on Jesus. The letter of Colossians essentially says this, Christ is all we need and all we've got. And so here's my hope for our church throughout this series. We've been talking a lot about what we want to see our church do What's next for Jesus Chapel? Where we're headed in the future? All those are good things, and strategy is a good thing, and planning is a good thing. You know, we, we, We're seeing practical ministry-related things. We're, we're asking, what does we see this looking like in the future? What are some of the things that we need to put in place in order to get to where we're trying to go? And those are good things, but they are certainly less of my concern for our church. I am much less concerned with what we are doing and where we're going. I'm much more concerned with who we're becoming. I'm much more interested in asking that question. You see, we could fill the building and do a bunch of stuff, but if we do it without, a, without creating a comprehensive vision for our lives where Jesus rules and reigns, a comprehensive vision for our workplace, our family, our city, where Jesus rules and reigns, we will have wasted our time. We will not become together who we were called to become if we start to move towards things to do and not towards who we are called to be. You see, we all need to grow in maturity. We need to grow in the knowledge of God. We need to learn how to express our gratitude in worship and in life. We need our heads and our hearts renewed by the supremacy of Christ. We need to be reminded that Christ is above all. We need to be reminded that the path to wisdom, spiritual maturity, and understanding is found in Christ alone. Put simply, Colossians is a book about life in Christ. What does it look like to live in him? It's a book that teaches us how to live in his victory, how to lean into his fullness, and in doing so, learn our new identity. And upon learning what our new identity in Christ is, teach us how to respond in thankfulness and thanksgiving. I want us to notice the introductory sections of this. Verse 3, Paul starts out his letter with saying, we always thank God. And then down in verse 12, he says, comes back again, bringing this idea of giving thanks. And this is going to be a theme we see throughout the book that's going to teach us that spiritual maturity, the way forward, the path to life in Christ, is understanding who God is, what He has done in Jesus, and responding in thanksgiving to that. I am worried that We don't, as a people, spend enough time in thankfulness for what God has done. I am worried that I, myself, as a person, spend more time worrying about the things before me, spend more time worrying about the things that I just read about in the news, spend more time worrying about the things that affect me on a day-to-day basis than I do in responding in thankfulness to God. And I think what Paul is going to lay out for us in this letter is that the key to spiritual maturity is seeing who God is, seeing what He's done in Christ, and responding in thankfulness to that. That's how we start to move forward. So let's get into the text. Paul begins the book by introducing who he is and who he is writing to. He is an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will. He is writing to the saints, and I want us to notice something, in Christ at Colossae. The entire book can be summed up in one of those two sections, in Christ or at Colossae. He starts out with this prayer of thanksgiving for them, and that prayer is going to move into a prayer of intercession. And so let's go verse 3 through 8. He starts with a prayer of thanksgiving before moving into a prayer of of intercession. He tells them that he is thankful for their faith in Christ Jesus. He is thrilled for the love that they have for the saints. But all of these things, their faith in Christ Jesus, their hope for the saints, or their love for the saints, it all stems from a hope that they have reserved in heaven. I think a question we have to ask ourselves as we come to this, okay, what is the hope that they have reserved in heaven? And it's a wonderful question because Paul saw it coming and he answers it. In verse 5, he says this, because of the hope reserved for you in heaven, you have already heard about this hope in the word of truth, which is the gospel. And this gospel that has come to them, they have received this truth. It is bearing fruit and it is growing in the whole world. I think it's important for us to take note of that language, that it is bearing fruit and it is growing in the whole world. It's also important for us to take notice of the way that Paul responds. He says that the gospel is essentially the active participant here. Right? It's a hope that is reserved for you. The gospel is that hope. It's the word of truth. The gospel is the word of truth. It is bearing fruit and increasing. The gospel is bearing fruit and increasing. It's doing the active work. And So I think we have to ask when we come to this passage, okay, what is the gospel? What do we mean when we say that? What is this thing that seems to be constantly being the active participant? Well, as we know and as we have studied in the past, the good news of, of Christ is the gospel. The good news of Christ invading the brokenness of our world, bringing about renewal, forgiving the sins of his people. That is the good news. It's the good news that the kingdom of God has come and it is being established through the ministry of Jesus. And Paul is going to tie this thought in throughout the entire letter that spiritual maturity is not something we somehow attain apart from Christ, apart from the gospel. It is leaning into him. Now take that thought with me and follow me into the next phrase. So we stopped with it's bearing fruit and growing over the whole world just as it has among you. You see, the gospel not only is bearing fruit and growing all over the whole world, but it is also bearing fruit and it is growing in their own church body. It is stepping in and it is influencing and it's starting to change and transform. The gospel is something that they can actively see moving forward. It's not something that just got them in. It's not something that just happened when the church started and we got a collection of people who believed in the gospel. No, it's something that is continuing and it is ongoing. And this work of the gospel is leading for them to truly appreciate God's grace. There's that idea of thankfulness, appreciating what God has done. He then takes this thought and he transitions into a prayer of intercession. He says, for this reason, since the day we heard this, we have not stopped praying for you. But there's specific things he's praying. He's not just praying like, yeah, Lord, I pray that you would bless them. I pray that they would just have a great time all the time. I pray that they would be happy and wholesome. And no, that's not what he's praying. What does he pray? He prays that they would be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. But there's a purpose for this. Why is he praying that this would happen for them? Those two words, so that they would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord fully pleasing to him. You see what Paul is unlaying in this prayer for them is he is praying that as they start to know God, as they start to understand his will, as they start to spiritually understand what he's doing that it would translate into a life that is worthy of him. And so I think an observation we have to draw, draw out of this is that knowledge of God leads to love for God and life with God. And life with God then leads to knowledge of God. As we're going to see, this is a cycle that is happening here. He then goes on to say something that's important for us to note. Remember the language from earlier, bearing fruit and growing. Well, that's going to repeat itself here. Verse 10 So that you may walk in a manner worthy to the Lord, worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and growing in the knowledge of God. He is tying that back to the work of the gospel, that the work of the gospel would lead to them bearing fruit in every good work, and it would lead to them increasing, growing in the knowledge of God. That is what the Gospel does in the church. It leads to fruit being born in our own lives and it leads to an increase in the knowledge of God. Again, I think we have to ask, who's the active participant? It's the work of God made known in the Gospel. Paul's prayer is that they would lean into the Gospel and in doing so it would then translate into their lives and that would lead to good works, that would lead to more knowledge. You see, what Paul is unpacking here in this prayer is that spiritual maturity is not and it cannot be actions that we do. It is looking to Christ, understanding who he truly is, who he has revealed himself to be, and by doing so, by seeing him in the gospel, the good news of him starts to now bear fruit and grow in our lives, leading to every good work that we will put our hands to. I think it's important for us to make a note on something. We've mentioned this idea that spiritual maturity does not equal reading your Bible or attending church or praying. But what I want to make sure that there's something that's important that we address here is those things reading your Bible, attending church, praying, with the end goal of seeing Christ and knowing Him, seeing Him in the gospel, that will bear fruit and increase. You see, the question is not, do we have habits in our life? The question is, do we put habits and behaviors in front of us that point us and shape our affections towards Jesus? That's the purpose of the things that we do. When we gather here on a Sunday morning, is the purpose for us to check something off of a box, or is it to see Jesus? When we spend time in the Word, is the purpose for us to check something off of a box, or is it to send to see Jesus? When we pray... Is the purpose for us to say, well, I talked to God today, or is it to see Jesus and to know God and grow in our knowledge of him so that we may bear fruit? Because the gospel always does that. Seeing Jesus leads to spiritual maturity, and the habits that we place in our lives should be for the purpose of seeing him and knowing him and growing in him. see, good work is not what gives us access to Christ. It stems from the gospel. But then as we enter into good works, every good work that is given to the people of God, it helps us to grow in our knowledge of him. It is hard to know Jesus when you don't walk in servanthood. That's a piece of him that is very prevalent in his ministry and his life. There is a piece of him that we will experience as we step into servanthood. There's a piece of the gospel that we will experience. There is a piece of who God is that we start to experience when we go through suffering. There is a piece of who God is that we start to experience when we start to read his words and know his words. But the purpose of it should be so that we will see Jesus and that our affections will be stirred towards him. Paul's prayer of intercession for the people in Colossae is that the gospel would do such a work in them that they are then strengthened with all power. Now, we've talked about this in the past. The the power that's talked about. When when the New Testament writers bring up the power, what power are they referring to? Is this going to mean like we have force powers or is this going to mean like we're just going to get super strong? Like what is it exactly that they're talking about here? We know from... Scripture that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. So if we believe that sin is what we need saving from, that it is at the root of all problems, the power for salvation is found in the gospel of God. And so our role as Christians is to lean more into the gospel and start to apply that work to different areas of our lives. Why do we do that? Because it's the power of God for salvation from sin. And if all of the things that we're seeing in life that we're saying this is problematic or that's an issue or that's, that is severe, that is, that is a huge issue, I am seeing brokenness in me, the solution for that is to look to the power of God that gives us salvation and then to start working that out and walking that out. Now, I'm, I'm worried that what could be heard here is, well, I just have to hear the gospel again. And I think that's true. You do need multiple exposures over and over and over again to the gospel. But the gospel also gives us the power to step into spaces that we previously would not be be able to step into because we had to work through issues of self-justification. And when we looked at that piece of who we are, that terrible piece of who we are, we couldn't face ourselves anymore. But now that we have the gospel, we can enter into those spaces knowing the truth that he has said about us and starting to apply that truth to different areas of our lives. This is why it's helpful to know yourself so that you can know the good news of the gospel and how it specifically applies to your situation. So Paul prays that they would be strengthened with that power. But he doesn't pray, and this is fascinating to me, he does not pray that they'd be strengthened according to their faith. But instead, he prays that they would be strengthened according to God's glorious might. Not according to their strength, but according to God's. Be strengthened. For the purpose of endurance. So that they would continue to follow him. So that they may have great endurance and patience. Now let's take those words and apply them to the very specific situation of the Colossian church. What Paul is praying for is that as there are pressures from the inside that would say, give up, follow something different, change your theology, make Jesus less than, add to his person, add or dip, subtract from his work, you're not good enough without him. That's the truth of the gospel. And there is nothing you can add to that to make you any better. The the good news of the gospel is that he is enough, that he is sufficient, that he is complete. And what Paul is saying is, I pray that not according to your faith, but according to the strength of God, you would be made strong for endurance. According to his strength so that you can endure when things would try to pull at you and and move you away from who God is. He is praying that you would be gifted with strength to say, no, this is who I know he is. And to walk the race of endurance, continuing to fix our eyes on Christ. Christian brother and sister, hear me. The solution to spiritual maturity is found in a God-fueled and Christ-centered life. Paul in verses 13 and 14 starts to make a bit of a transition. He starts to then go about unpacking what it is that God has done in Christ and what now becomes ours in Christ. He says that they are rescued from darkness. They are transferred to the kingdom of the Son He loves. I want us to stop there and pause there for just a moment. They are in a culture where everywhere it turns, it seems like there is darkness that is abounding. That sin is everywhere, that brokenness is everywhere. They're seeing it in their midst. They're seeing it in their lives. And what Paul does here is he points to the work of God to transfer them to that place of darkness, into a new kingdom, citizens of the kingdom of heaven, citizens of the gospel's kingdom. And why is that important for us? Why does that matter? Because that means that as the world shifts and as the world changes, our allegiance is not to the world that is shifting and changing. It is to a kingdom that is forever, and it is to the kingdom of the Son who God loves. We are citizens of a kingdom that God loves. That is what He has done. He has transferred us to that kingdom. But he's not only transferred us into the kingdom, he has united us to the king. He uses this very specific term, which we are going to see all throughout the New Testament, specifically throughout the book of Colossians, in him. Or you might see in Christ. This term right here, in him, it is only in him. That we have redemption. It is only in Christ that we have the forgiveness of sins. You see, thankfulness for what God has done through the work of Christ, that he has forgiven us of our sins, is the key to moving forward. Thankfulness, responding in gratitude to who God is. But in order to respond in gratitude, we have to see who He is. We have to see what He's done. We have to know what He's done. And what the book of Colossians is going to do is it's going to say the key to your life, the key to your spiritual maturity is to lift up Christ and to respond to what God has done in thankfulness. What God has done is made clear for us When Christ is made preeminent in our lives, what God has done is made clear for us when Christ is made preeminent in our lives, when He is the first, when He is in front. This is going to come up for us in Colossians chapter 3 when He starts out. If you have been raised with Christ, seek the things above. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things above. Why? Because that's how we move forward in, forward in hope. That's how we move forward in victory. That's how we move forward in life with Christ, is setting our eyes on him who is the, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, that's how we move forward. So, what does this mean for us? What do we do here? How do we respond to a passage like this? I think there's a couple ways that we respond to this. Um, one of the things we've done for our for our staff here is uh, we kind of we, we're trying to speak some words into the life of our church. Uh, one of them is that we really celebrate confession. That's something we want to celebrate when that happens in the body here. The other one that we're trying to do is we are trying to emphasize being over doing. We are are really focused on emphasizing being with God, being with Christ, because we truly believe that that's going to lead to transformed living. That's going to lead to bearing fruit, as we see in John chapter 15, that those who abide in Christ will bear much fruit. Bart from me, you cannot bear fruit. So we're like, all right, well, let's make sure that we're emphasizing abiding in who Christ is. And so we want to make sure that that's a huge focus on the life of our staff. Uh, One of the things that I find very easy to do in Christian ministry, very easy to do, is to get so caught up in the practical day-to-day of things that we actually end up like doing more and not actually emphasizing being with God. There's always things on the back of the plate, always things to move into. And so what we've done is we've started to say in our staff's schedule here, one day a week you are required to not do work, or one day a month, sorry, not a week. That was, yeah. One day a month, you are required to not do work, to turn off your phone and just take your Bible and a pen and a notebook and just go be with God for a few hours. That's what we're asking of you today. And so um, I am naturally better at preaching than I am at doing. And so for three months, I haven't actually done that. And so this last week, I was feeling it. I was feeling a weight on me. Like, man, I have just, there's a lot to do before me. And so uh, I cleared out some meetings and uh, just wrote the staff and said, hey, is it okay if I take my day this Wednesday? And they're like, yeah, absolutely, take your day. So on Wednesday, I, I took my day. I drove up to Scenic Drive, and I just started to look out. And I started to look out over the city and see how big this city really is and see how many people really are in this city and see how many things are happening. And this thing started to happen as I was parked there and I was was sitting outside my car for a moment and then it started raining, so I jumped back in my car and I, I noticed other people starting to come. And they weren't coming to take pictures or they weren't coming to like show a friend. They just came, parked their car for a minute, sat and looked and then left. And I started to ask the question, like, why do we do this? Like, What is it that's so ingrained in us that we feel the need to come to a place and look out? What drives a human being to that thing? I mean, it's beautiful, don't get me wrong, but beauty cannot be the only thing that drives us. What is it that causes us to, in the middle of my day, take the long, the long way to go sit and park, stare, and leave? So I started to ask this question, why do we look out? And I think I came to the answer that it's because we need to remember the world is bigger than us. There are other things going on that are not just directly related to my situation. As I'm sitting there staring out over this city, it was this reminder for me that there is so much more happening. And as I'm sitting there staring out over this city... I'm thinking to myself, isn't it incredible that the gospel is bearing fruit and increasing even in this city? But I think our temptation and our tendency is that sometimes we can be so focused on what's happening right before us that we don't see that. We don't see where God is doing those things. We don't don't look out. And so I think one of the things that I would like to do for us this morning that I think is important for us but I think it's also important for us to remember. Usually, is to, to take a step back and look out and see what God's doing. I don't know if you know this. We live in a Western society, and Western societies are actually the place where Christian uh, Christianity is just declining. Mostly, we're not growing in Western societies, and in fact, we're we're shrinking. And I think we can look at that, and we can look at our nation, we can look at the things that are happening, and we can start to become very concerned and think, the gospel just isn't enough for this. Or we can start to become very concerned, and we can think, man, it's just all going down, and this everything's bad and terrible all the time, and it can be hard to respond in thankfulness when we just see things declining. But I think it's important to recognize that that is not the narrative of Christianity all over the globe. That is not the narrative of the gospel globally. You see, while we are declining in Western states, I think it's important for our Western countries, I think it's important for us to recognize that if we look out just a little bit in Africa, in the year 1900, there were only 8.7 million Christians over the entire continent. Now there are an estimated 390 million And that number is expected to go up to 600 million by the year 2025. The gospel is certainly increasing and bearing fruit. In Iran, in the last 20 years, more Iranians have become Christians than in the previous 13 centuries. Since Islam came to Iran, Iran, there has not been as much Christian growth as there has been in the last 20 years. In 1971, they estimated it as around 500 Christians total in the whole country of Iran. Now, they're estimating hundreds of thousands. Some estimate more than a million. For all the talk that's been going on in Afghanistan, which is important conversations to have, one of the things that I think is getting lost is they're the second fastest growing Christian community in the entire world. You know what that means? Jesus is going to get the Taliban. (laughs) He's coming for their hearts. We can talk all day about whether or not it was done well, how we got out of there. I think we might have needed to move out of the way so the church could keep growing. And I think it's really important that we look to that and we start praying for that. We look out. We remember that the gospel is increasing and it is bearing fruit. And when we do that, we can start to respond in thankfulness because we know that the narrative around who Christ is is that he is going to transform and renew the world. He is always going to be bearing fruit and increasing, which means that if we are in Christ, we can trust that he is doing the exact same thing in us. And so we lean into that. We have hope forevermore because Christ is in us and he is always bearing fruit. He is always increasing. See, the book of Colossians starts to stir our hearts. It shifts our thinking to answer the questions of this world rightly. So what is our hope in life or death? It's Christ alone, Christ alone. What is our only confidence that our souls to him belong? What will keep us to the end? The love of Christ in which we stand unto the grave. What will we sing? It's that Christ lives. Christ lives. And what reward will heaven bring? It's everlasting life with him. Now and forever, we will confess that Christ is our hope in life and death, and because of that, we can respond in thankfulness, even when the situations before us don 't warrant it i 've been over the last few weeks rereading through uh, the Chronicles of Narnia and Uh, I think my favorite's The Horse and His Boy now. I think I'm moving in that direction, but there's a story in The Horse and His Boy where Shasta, who's the main character, states how unfortunate his life has been. And Aslan, the lion, who is the Christ figure in the book, says, but don't you see how back there when you said it was unfortunate that a lion attacked you in the wilderness? It was how you met up with this other person who gave you some purpose for your life? And don't you see how earlier when you were so surprised that, that lions attacked you again, it was so that the horses you were on would actually get to the place they needed to go in time for you to save the day? Shasta asks, he goes, but what about when I was a child and I was left all alone to die. And Aslan responds, I was there too. I was the one who blew the boat to make sure it reached safety so that you would survive. You see, when we look at the circumstances before us, it can feel like things are unfortunate. But when we take a step back and we look out, we can see how God is continuing to work and Christ is continuing to work, and He is always accomplishing what He sets out to do. And that gives us the victory and the hope to respond in thankfulness to His work. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word that speaks to us, that teaches us, that helps us to grow, that leads us into righteousness. Would you help us to respond in thankfulness to who you are, to what you have done? May we gain, as we preach through this book, a bigger view of who you are. That's what we want, Lord. We want to we believe that you are who you say you are. Help us to do so. Help us to lean into your words. Help us to believe the gospel. Help us to see you for who you really are. It's in your name we pray. Amen.